Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. Sprite Castle. With Robo Hair. Sprite Castle. Hello and welcome to Sprite Castle, the show in which I play, discuss, and review Commodore 64 games. My name is Rob Flack O'Hara, and on this episode of Sprite Castle, I will be discussing Maniac Mansion. What video game-related term was invented by the creators of this game to describe one of its features? You'll find out later on by listening to this episode. But before we get started with this episode's game, let's check the Daily Sun for this week's Paperboy headlines. Welcome back to Sprite Castle. After a short recording hiatus in the month of April, we are back. I have so many things going on in my real life outside of the world of podcasting, along with uh, all the school-related functions both of my children are involved in. My wife taking vacation, going on travel. It has been busy, busy, busy. So uh, after a short break, I am glad to return right here behind the mic and talk to you about Commodore 64 games. I did receive some feedback about the last episode. Of course, the last episode has been, gosh, over a month now. And it was the uh, episode in which I was talking about Space Taxi. And there was a version of Space Taxi on Steam that had a character that looked like a bee or a Greek beta character that I was not familiar with. And Pixel Poldy, a listener, wrote in and told me that the letter, which looks like the beta in German, and then he attached it, which is great because I can't find that on my keyboard, is called Scharf's S, uh, and then in quotes he put Sharp S, it is used instead of SS in quotes when a long spoken vocal is before and sounds like the CE from space. So that's uh, in the, the game that I looked up, it was Space Taxi, but instead of CE, it was Spay and then this B. So it's apparently a German character. I did not know how to say that. I didn't recognize what it was. So thank you very much for the feedback, Pixel Poldy. The other feedback I got for the last episode was all the entries for that episode's King of the Castle. The King of the Castle song for the last episode was Major Tom by Peter Schilling. Uh, Obviously, the connection there being space taxis and driving around uh, in outer space with Major Tom. You know, sometimes uh, many people have written to me over the years and said, gosh, I just knew for sure you were going to use song X. When I heard the episode, I knew it was going to be that song. And then at the end of the episode, it wasn't that song. Some people say that would have been a better song. But here's the problem. For each episode to include an 8-bit song, uh, step one is finding an 8-bit version of a song. And so many times I, too, have a song in mind. Uh, But if it's not available, then I have to go to choice number two, choice number three. And actually, a lot of times what I do is take choice number one and remove it from the list of possibilities, because I don't want them to be too easy. Then everybody would get to be a king of the castle. And what is 
the benefit of being part of royalty and getting invited to a VIP party if everybody can get in. Gosh. Anyway, congratulations to the last episode's Kings of the Castle, who successfully identified Major Tom as being the 8-bit song. Uh, congratulations to Pixel Poldy, Dan Creek, Justin May, Rick Reynolds, Tad M, Sask Punisher, Joseph Sharippa, Bill Spear. Um, I don't have... Uh, Steve Sharippa on here, but I just have a feeling he also got it here. So, you know what, uh, Joseph, uh, let's just consider your invitation a plus one. If you bring your brother, I'm okay with that this time. So anyway, congratulations to all the kings of the castles. If you would like to be a king of the castle, all you have to do is listen to the 8-bit song, which is played near the end of this episode. It will be related to the show's topic, but won't be directly from the game itself. If you recognize that song, all you have to do is send me an email at robohara at robohara.com. Be sure to put King of the Castle in the subject line. That way, Gmail's spam filter won't gobble it up, and you will receive your personal invitation to the behind-the-scenes party here at Sprite Castle in the VIP party room. So congratulations to all of last month's Kings of the Castle. Let's move on to some Commodore 64 news. I saw that there were firmware updates, two updates, in fact, for the Kung Fu Flash cartridge. This is a cartridge you can use with original hardware that will allow you to load and I believe save uh, games in DC64 format. It actually supports a lot of formats. Uh, they released a firmware update 1.38, which was quickly followed by 1.39, which fixed some small timing issues. It turns on disk emulation. There's an entire list of updates. So if you own one of these Kung Fu Flash cartridges, uh, I own one. It is a very handy utility. I've used it with my SX64 because I have an Ultimate 64 and I have an Ultimate 1541, but it's kind of a pain to move those things around constantly. Um, it's not difficult to connect them or disconnect them, but once you have your, your desk set up and have everything the way you like it, sometimes it's not fun to move everything around. So I have used that before with my SX64. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Kung Fu Flash, go Google it. Um, it was, uh, created by Kim Jorgensen, I believe is how you say that name. Uh, the, I think whenever I see him, I always see him being sold by the future was eight bit. So I think they have a pretty good deal on it. So, uh, if you're looking for one of those solutions in the ultimate 64, uh, or the ultimate 1541 is not in your price range or they're not available, which has been the case uh, due to supply chain issues for a while, then you might check those out as an alternative. There have been lots and lots of new games released for the Commodore 64 since the last episode. Probably the one with the most hype was The Empire Strikes Back. This was a uh, an updated port conversion, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, of the original Empire Strikes Back game released for the Atari 2600. I believe if I remember my trivia correctly, that was the first licensed Star Wars game released for any system. Uh, the game consists of a snow speeder and you are protecting the rebel base on Hoth as, as it is being attacked by 
in the original AT-ATs, but in this one, ATST, aka Chicken Walkers, which was what I remember people referring to those as, as opposed to Snow Walkers the four-legged variety. Anyway, uh, it was released on May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. Um, I played this recently on a stream. It is of amazingly high quality. The graphics are fantastic. The music is fantastic. The sound is fantastic. Uh, I believe I read on Twitter that they were considering a physical release that seems like a bad idea from the start. Not that I wouldn't purchase it. <laughs> I'd love to have a physical release of this in my collection, but getting something, sneaking something like a Star Wars game past Lucas's or Disney's lawyers sounds like an uphill battle. So that's too bad that that fell through, but the game is available for download for free. So you could go look for that. The Empire Strikes Back by Megastyle. I actually played on my recent stream, I played three games. The second one I played was Pac-Man, and this is an updated release by Arlisoft. Now, everybody knows that pretty much every computer system, especially vintage 8-bit systems and 16-bit systems, have uh, more copies of Pac-Man than anybody could play in a lifetime. But this release is uh, a arcade. It, it looks more like the arcade version of Pac-Man and it's quite good. I played it on the stream. I would say that the graphics look very authentic to the arcade version of Pac-Man. Now Pac-Man, obviously the arcade version is a vertical style game. It's played, it was originally played on a vertical oriented monitor. And so there's only so many ways you could do that. You can either shrink down the maze to make it fit on a horizontal monitor, or you can have the game scroll. And that is the option that Arlisoft went with on this release. So you can see the bottom two thirds of the maze. And when you move up, you can, it, the game scrolls up and you can see the top. Uh, that makes it a little difficult. If you don't clear an entire top or, or bottom of the maze, because, you know, you can't see the dots <laughs> that are missing. Uh, I did enjoy it very much. I thought it looked a lot like the arcade version. The sounds aren't authentic to the arcade version, but they were very good. And uh, again, it's hard to complain with anything of this quality, and it's hard to complain about anything that is free. So uh, if you like Pac-Man and those classic arcade games, you might want to go check that out. And finally, the third game I streamed was Munchkin 64. This is a port of Casey Munchkin that you may remember from all the way back in the late 70s when it was released for the Odyssey 2. This is the game of those three, out of those three, the one that I was the least familiar with. I do vaguely remember playing this, but we sold our Odyssey 2 to buy an Atari 2600. We kind of did backwards from a lot of people. Uh, my my dad thought that the Odyssey 2 would be more advanced because it had the keyboard and things like that. So we got an Odyssey 2 first before owning an uh, Atari 2600 or the VCS. But unfortunately, it was very difficult in my part of the country to get Odyssey 2 games. And so after not being able to find games for the system, we sold that and moved over to the Atari. So I definitely remember... Casey Munchkin. Uh, it was not a game that uh, was one of my favorites. I think a lot of people know it because of its history with the lawsuit 
being sued as a ripoff because it was a maze style game. Um, but we're long past the lawsuit and here it is Munchkin 64 released for the Commodore 64. It has two modes that I played during the stream. One is authentic to the original. The other one is an updated arcade version that has uh, better graphics. Uh, it has uh, some lovely music that plays that can be turned on and off. And if you want to see that, you could go to uh, twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara, uh, or you can just go to my podcast website and I've got links to the YouTube channels and stuff if you want to check out the stream. But uh, yeah, it was pretty enjoyable. A few of the other games that were released last month that I did not stream were Orbital Rescue. This was by RunStop64. It is uh, being advertised as an homage to Jupiter Lander with parts of Choplifter and Fort Apocalypse. Uh, so I did check that out. Very fun, uh, especially if you like Jupiter Lander. You can check out Orbital Rescue. There's a game called Jitnog. I don't know if that you're supposed to say it or it's J-I-T-N-O-G, but it's Jitnog in all capitals, and it stands for Judge in the Name of God. Now, this is an interesting game. Uh, you are a judge, and you are presented with a list of sins, and so you are in charge of punishing sinners <laughs> based on the rule set that you are given within the game. So uh, that I, you know, that is a unique idea. I don't think I've ever played a game that had another uh, scenario quite like that. So that's an interesting one to check out. Uh, I saw a release of the Great Guiana, or Great Guiana is how I used to say it, Great Guiana Sisters. Uh, this is the Great Guiana Petsky Sisters. So if you are familiar with Petsky graphics, those uh, graphic symbols that are unique to Commodore computers, this is a version of Great Guiana Sisters, which of course was essentially a ripoff of uh, Super Mario Brothers. Um and uh, it is made just with keyboard symbols. Uh, because those symbols aren't very detailed, the graphics are very large. I think your player character takes up uh, about a third of the screen, which <laughs> you're very gigantic. Um, this was part of a gaming competition. And so I did read that it might not be the entire game. Uh, I think the entire game was eight levels with four worlds uh, or eight worlds with four levels each. So it was 32 levels. So I don't know if it has all 32, but it is something to behold. It is very unique. So if you're interested in uh, something unique, go check out Great Guiana Petsky Sisters. Uh, I found a new game called Don't Punish Me, which I would say is probably more akin to a strategy or text adventure style game. Uh, you're presented with different options and you use your keyboard, the numbers one, two, and three to uh, respond to different text scenarios. Uh, so that is, uh, it was an interesting little thing. I watched a video on that. I haven't personally played that one yet, uh, but Don't Punish Me was a release. And then uh, another one is Strike Back. And I saw videos of this on YouTube. I've been following, if you don't follow Sarah Jane Avery, she has put out some many fantastic games on the Commodore 64 over the past few years. This is her side-scrolling shoot-em-up. I guess there is some controversy or was some controversy people weren't happy because it was a military theme and it was about um possibly 
uh, either related to or could be construed to be related to uh, what is happening in Ukraine and with Russia. Uh, there was a lot of uh, it, it's what, what's what's crazy to me is I, I get that there's a um, that it could be construed that way and maybe it was originally even intended that way. But we've been playing war games on computers since like day one. Like I mean, one of the first games I ever saw was Artillery, which was a game where you <laughs> shot things you know out of a cannon and you you figured up angles and things like that. So um, I don't. Really, I try, I try very hard to separate uh, politics or anything from from my video game playing. So it certainly didn't bother me. There are a million military themed games, video games, and uh, I've you know whatever happens, what happens in video games stays in video games. I think that's a <laughs> probably a good rule of thumb. So uh, any political. Uh, connotations didn't bother me, but I, I think it had upset some people. So I, I didn't delve too far into that, but uh, regardless, strike back is out. So if you're looking for a good side scrolling, shoot em up game, go check that out. I also saw a few new games that are in the works. Knights uh, and slimes is one, which has a funny name. It is an arcade platformer that looks really, really good as does a pig's quest, which is by Antonio Savannah, who has been responsible for many great, really good games for the Commodore 64. So both of those are high on my list. And I also saw a port of new rally X is coming for the Commodore 64. I am a fan of rally X. I love rally X. The, Bowling Alley I went to as a kid had Rally X, a cocktail version, and I loved playing that. So I am excited about that. I I don't think it's everybody's favorite game, but it was definitely one of mine in the arcades. So I'm definitely uh, looking forward to checking that out when it is finally released. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at robohair at robohair.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me at the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on my personal podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my show, visit Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page again. That is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. And those are this week's headlines brought to you by my local paperboy who just threw a newspaper through my front window. Awesome now that we've covered this week's news, let's discuss this week's snack. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Crack, crack, crack the egg into the bowl. Talking snack. You know, when I was a kid, my parents had their own food and drink, which was off limit <laughs> to us as children. Uh, today... That does not seem to be the case. I have purchased my favorite box of cereal only to let it sit in the cabinet for a month. And, and that one morning when you really want a box of Count Chocula or whatever it is you've been saving to go in there, 
pull that box out and find that it is completely empty. That's two levels of frustration. One, somebody ate my cereal. And number two, they put an empty box back into the pantry. (laughs) But my mom, uh, every morning had to have a glass of cold Coca-Cola. And I remember as a kid, if there was just a little bit of Coke, you would never drink the last of the Coke. That was mom's Coke. But my dad had a few things, and one of his things was my dad had his own chunk of cheese. (laughs) The ones I remember were shaped almost like a taco, like that kind of half-moon crescent shape uh, that came from Kraft, and it was just a big chunk of cheese. And when my dad would go in and work on the computer or sometimes watch TV, I remember he would go into the kitchen, open up the fridge, and just cut off a chunk of this cheese and sit there and and just nibble on this, (laughs) just a big chunk of cheese. And that was dad's cheese. Nobody was allowed to go cut a piece of cheese off of the cheese chunk. (laughs) That was just my dad's. And so I recently was in a grocery store with my wife and I saw those chunks of cheese and I remembered that. And I said, I want my own chunk of cheese. And so, uh, I think I've gone through about three chunks of cheese over the past couple of months. And I have started kind of a late night ritual. If I'm going to stay up late and I'm going to work on something in here on the computer, the first thing I do is I go into the kitchen, I'll pour me a little half a glass of milk and I'll open up the fridge and I will pull out my little chunk of cheese and cut off a big chunk of it and bring it in here. And so when I'm working late at night, I will drink and sip on ice cold milk and nibble on this big chunk of cheese. And so as I was working on this episode, that is exactly what I did. Now there is a chunk of cheese that appears in maniac mansion. It appears in a refrigerator. And apparently if you, take the cheese or don't take the cheese, you can get a different cut screen uh, or cut scene that appears in the game. I don't think it actually affects the outcome of anything, but as I was playing Maniac Mansion, I ran across that little factoid and that is actually what reminded me of the cheese. So I went back in the kitchen, cut off my piece of cheese and sat in here and and finished working on the episode. So, uh, I mean, that is kind of, I guess... I'm kind of like my own little character. I just got my own cheese and and sat here working on this episode in my own little mansion. And speaking of mansions, look at that. Maniac Mansion is published for the Commodore 64 in 1987 by Lucasfilm Games. It is a game for one player that uses joystick controls. This game was developed and published by Lucasfilm Games. Uh, Lucasfilm games, Lucas, uh, the company had created multiple computer games, uh, games for computers and games for, uh, home video game consoles. They had done ball blazer. They had done rescue on fractalus and Coronas rift. A lot of these early games, they had a, a publishing deal with Atari. So they were making games that were then getting released by Atari. Other games were being released by Activision. The first one I remember seeing uh, was Labyrinth, and that was a big deal to me. And I'll talk a lot about Labyrinth on this episode. Now, behind the scenes, I think 
that Lucasfilm, after the release of the last uh, Star Wars movie, Return of the Jedi, started seeing some financial issues. They didn't have these big um, movies that were necessarily bringing in a lot of money. And I don't think Howard the Duck necessarily put them in the black. And so uh, behind the scenes at Lucasfilm, there was a push for all departments to begin earning a profit. I believe this coincides with the time of uh, Lucas uh, himself having some financial issues. And so uh, the the game development team came up. Uh, they, now, this had already kind of been in motion, but they uh, the plan became to put out this game called Maniac Mansion. Now, uh, part of the deal in, uh, that they wanted to do to turn a profit was instead of offering this to someone else to publish. They wanted to publish it it themselves. And so Maniac Mansion is actually the first self-published game, which was put out by Lucasfilm Games. Uh, Behind the scenes, as they began developing this game, the uh, lead programmer, Rob, uh, excuse me, Ron Gilbert, uh, came up with an engine. Now, you've probably, if you're into vintage gaming or point-and-click gaming or or uh, anything, any type of gaming on these old computers, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you've probably heard of something called the SCUM engine. Now, SCUM, spelled S-C-U-M-M, stood for the Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. This was a gaming engine that was developed uh, to facilitate the creation of this game. One of the things that this let them do uh, later on was all they had to do was, well, well, two things. Number one, this allowed them to make other games that ran on the same engine. So the programming, the underlying code didn't have to be rewritten from scratch every time. They could just write games using the same engine and run it on top of that. The other thing this allowed them to do was port that engine to other systems, and that allowed them to easily create the game one time and then publish it on different platforms. So uh, the Scum engine was... I won't say the most important thing that came out of Maniac Mansion, but it is a very important part of the development of this game and very important uh, to Lucasfilm games. Now, other games that you may be familiar with later on included Zack McCracken, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, The Secret of Monkey Island, Loom, and of course, hundreds and hundreds of Star Wars games. Uh, the last Lucasfilm games that show up on Moby Games are Lego Star Wars, Castaways, and the very last one from 2021 is Zombies Ate My Neighbors and Ghoul Patrol. I guess that's a, I assume that's a double release. (laughs) That's two games uh, for one. Uh, This game was the mastermind of Ron Gilbert. Multiple people worked on this, but Ron Gilbert was the person behind the game. Uh, Ron worked on Coronas Rift. He worked on Ball Blazer. Then he did Maniac Mansion. He went on to work on many of those other games. Uh, He's probably more well-known for his work on The Secret of Monkey Island and Monkey Island 2. Um, But uh, those were the things that uh, kind of came out of this game was uh, obviously the point-and-click games and Lucasfilm uh, was one of the the major companies behind that. Uh, 
Ron Gilbert went on to form Humongous Entertainment. He put out all the Freddy Fish games. There's a bunch of Let's Explore games, uh, a series of Putt-Putt games. And probably most interesting to people listening to this show is his new game, which is Return to Monkey Island, which has been on several uh, retro gaming news sites recently. And I think a lot of people that remember this style of game and uh, definitely have good memories of the Monkey Island games are looking forward to this latest sequel, uh, Return to Monkey Island. So uh, in the credits, Maniac Mansion says it was designed and written by Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick. Scripted by Ron Gilbert and David Fox, programmed by Ron Gilbert and Eric Wilmunder, graphic art and animations by Gary Winnick, and original music by Chris Grigg and David Lawrence. Local high school student Sandy Pants has been kidnapped by a mad scientist named Fred Edison, and it is up to you as Dave Miller, along with two of your friends, to infiltrate the Maniac's mansion and rescue her or die trying. Maniac Mansion is based on B-movie tropes and cliches, so there are many subtle references to those types of films throughout the game. The original title was released for the Commodore 64 and Apple II, and then it was later ported to many other systems. Ron Gilbert said that he was inspired to create this game by King's Quest and those Sierra adventures. But one thing he did not like about those games was how you had to type commands in. And he said it was very distracting to look at the action on the screen and then have to look down at the keyboard to input commands. And so what he wanted to do was come up with a game where the players could keep their eyes on the screen at all times. And so that was the impetus that started the development of Maniac Mansion and its unique at that time point and click interface, which was used for many years following this. On the front of the box, we get the title Maniac Mansion. Now, behind, right behind those words, we could see two things. One is a meteor, which seems to be heading towards Earth, and we're going to learn more about that meteor in this game. There's also a very faint face that appears that is obviously an evil doctor, which we will find out is Dr. Fred. And then there are five characters presented at the bottom of the screen. Uh, there is a mod looking guy. Uh, there's an average looking person. There is a nerd, a punk rock girl and a surfer dude. Uh, then of course at the bottom, it says Lucasfilm games. And then there is uh, a castle in the back, which we are going to find out later is the maniac mansion. The back of the box has lots of information. It starts off at the top that says maniac mansion. 
Then it says his ambition was to rule the world one teenager at a time. Suddenly, you're in the middle of a madcap adventure surrounding a meteor that crashed to the Earth some 20 years ago. Ever since it landed in the backyard of Dr. Fred and Nurse Edna's Victorian mansion, bizarre things have been happening. First, their mutant son, Weird Ed, dropped out of school. Then, patients started disappearing from County Hospital. And now this strange event is affecting the lives of innocent and even some not-so-innocent teenagers. In fact, a girl named Sandy is being held captive in that musty old mansion right now. Sandy's boyfriend, Dave, has lots of friends who need your help to sneak in and sneak her out. Now, exactly how it all ends up depends entirely on which trio of friends you send in there and which inhabitants you encounter. In fact... The farther you get inside the mansion, the more weird characters you'll meet. There's Nurse Edna, who's as nasty as she is ugly. There's a disembodied tentacle who wants you to make him a rock star. And a host of others who all have their own crazy quirks you'll have to deal with. Everyone in there seems to be working for Dr. Fred. But the question is, who is Dr. Fred working for? An adventure so compelling you'll never want to leave, which is just what Dr. Fred wants. <laughs> Uh, on the right-hand side, there is a list of things that uh, are included in the game. It starts off fairly innocently and goes down into some pretty bizarre entries. It says love, lust, power, greed, wealth, insanity, burglary, kidnapping, rock and roll music, nuclear reactors, electric cattle prods, classic automobiles, Microwave ovens, soft drinks, small furry animals, strange aliens, sleazy publishers, late night talk show hosts, mutants, geeks, punk rockers, postal fraud, obscene phone calls, undeveloped photographs, medical experiments, radiation suits, purple slime, and world domination. Of course, there are some screenshots included and there are little captions that ask questions like just to give one example, uh, there is a picture of the, um, razor, which is the punk rock girl standing in front of the mansion. And it says, how can Dave and razor get inside to rescue Sandy? So it kind of shows like you're going to have to be solving puzzles in this game. And, and uh, that's what all the screenshots basically show, uh, as part of this game. Now the manual is pretty interesting and pretty mandatory, I would say, if you plan on playing this game. Uh, right off the bat, it explains the opening. Well, it gives you the background. So it tells you the history of what's going on in the game. It talks about the meteor. It talks about the mansion. So there's background information in the manual that you don't get directly from the game. The next thing it does is walk you through getting into the mansion. So getting into the mansion is not really a difficult part of the game, but I, if I had to liken it, I would say it's almost like the tutorials that we have in modern games today, because it involves, you have to move a character to the front of the mansion. You have to figure out how to interact with things. There's a, the front door is locked. So you have to try to open the door and discover it's locked. There's a floor mat or a, a, a welcome mat. You have to interact with that and move it. You'll find the key. You have to get the key, use the key, 
eventually you unlock the door and walk into the mansion. So it really, even though it's a very simple puzzle, it gets you familiar with the interface. It gets you familiar with how to move characters, how to interact with objects, how to use one object with another object. And basically, if you can do those things, in theory... You could beat this game. Let's put that in let's put that in quotes. The in theory, you could beat this game. Um, also included in the manual are giant pictures of a bulletin board. Now, this bulletin board is ostensibly uh, where these kids all go to the same college, but there are a lot of inside jokes and there are a lot of hints for things that will appear in the game. So this is the type of information where if you were like me and you were a teenage dirty, dirty pilot, uh, pirate, you would have downloaded this and not got the manual. So you would have not known all this back information. So there's a lot of stuff that's in the manual that I, I won't say will help you beat the game, but helps you understand uh, the game. So uh, there are PDF scans of the manual online. If you're interested in this game, you should go check one of those out and read through it just because it has a lot of information about stuff that's in the game. So when the game fires up, uh, Dave is the character you're required to play with because Dave is Sandy's boyfriend. But, uh, the first thing you have to do is, is choose which other two characters will be joining you in the game. Now you get a, uh, you get faces like, uh, profile photos of each of the kids. And as you highlight them, it'll tell you a little bit about who they are. And each one has different skills. There's Sid. He's the musician. He's the one I thought that looked like I, uh, I would describe him as a mod type of guy, you know, skinny tie and, and looks like a musician. Uh, there's Michael. He is a award-winning photographer. You've got Wendy, who is an aspiring novelist, Bernard, who is president of, or president of the physics club, Razor, who is the lead singer of the punk band Razor and the Scumettes, which is kind of a uh, a reference, inside reference to the Scum Engine. And then you have Jeff, who hangs out on the beach. He is a surfer dude. I think this is a obvious reference to uh, Spicoli, Jeff Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So to begin the game, you have to pick two of these characters. Uh, one of the big selling points of Maniac Mansion We'll talk about this and, and what worked and what didn't work is that the game has different endings and different solutions to puzzles, depending on which kids that you pick. So you can beat the game with any combination of kids, but how you beat the game may be, well, will be different depending on which characters you have chosen to at this point. Now, the downside to this is that this actually led to a lot of bugs in the game. And I'll be talking about those bugs later on, but, uh, this, what this game wasn't e extensively <laughs> beta tested. And so depending on which people that you pick, if you follow certain actions, you can get this game fairly easily into an unwinnable state. So we'll talk about that when we get to it. The title screen begins with what looks like the opening to a movie. We get this text that says 20 years ago today, a meteor crashes at Dr. Fred's mansion. And then we get these opening credits that look like movie credits. It says maniac mansion that scrolls across the screen and we get uh, opening credits. 
Um, when those credits finish, it transitions very smoothly into the game. After everything is done loading, you will hear the sound of crickets, and then right on the screen you will see Dave and the other two characters that you chose. They're standing in front of what appears to be a full moon, and at this point you will see the interface of the game, which you will be using throughout the entire game. The top two-thirds of the screen is the graphic portion that you will, uh, where all the action of the game takes place. And the bottom third is the menu. Now, the menu is filled with uh, verbs that you can click using the joystick and the button. So you can pick a verb and then you can pick a noun. Now, the noun can be something in your inventory or the noun can be something that's on screen. So the verbs that are available to you are push, pull, give, open, close, read, walk to, pick up, what is, uh, new kid, which is how you switch characters, unlock, use, turn on, turn off, and fix. Now, this is is the first game that used this engine. This is the first uh, appearance of the scum VM engine or not scum VM. We'll talk about that. Uh, but of the scum engine, uh, the game before this labyrinth is not really considered to be the first point and click adventure. The way that the interface on labyrinth worked was that you had these big giant wheels. So you had a wheel on the left and a wheel on the right. The left one had verbs, the right one had nouns. And so you had to basically turn each wheel to line up sentences. So the idea was there. It was the same type of idea of not having users have to type things in on the keyboard. Um, but there were problems with labyrinth. Uh, labyrinth starts off as a text adventure. And a lot of people, it turned off people. People uh, saw that and they never made it to the actual part of the game. Uh, also, Labyrinth, unfortunately, was attached to a film that was not very successful, at least not in the United States. So that became a problem for marketing. So Maniac Mansion removed itself from, uh, you know, another uh, a vehicle, like a movie vehicle, and it changed it to where you had these verbs. So all the verbs are listed at, on the screen at all times. So that helps you when you're playing the game, you can look at the screen and look at the verbs and think, is there something I need to push? Is there something I need to read? Is there something I need to unlock? Um, originally they wanted to have 40 verbs and they pared it down to this small selection. So all the verbs that you need are all listed on the screen at all times. Now, Maniac Mansion on the Commodore 64 is controlled completely by the joystick. Uh, you use the joystick to move a cursor that appears on the screen, and you use the fire button to click. So that's how you move characters, is you point the cursor to where you want the character to go and click, and the person will walk there. If you don't have the walk-to-verb selected, you may have to switch to that verb. If you've been using look at or something like that, you may have to switch back to the walk to verb. Uh, you use the joystick also to select those phrases. So if there's something that you want to read, for example, if there's a sign, there's a sign at the beginning of the game, you click on read, and then you use the joystick and click on the sign. And it forms that sentence for you, read sign, and then you press the button and then your character does that. 
One of the things you'll have to use extensively in this game is the verb choice, what is. So if you click on what is and move the joystick around on the screen, anything that you can interact with will show up. It'll tell you what something is. A lot of times this game turns into find the right pixel or find the right area. Uh, when you get caught in a dungeon, there is a section of bricks that can be moved or pushed or something. Um, but to do that, I mean, you would never notice that just by looking at the graphics on screen. You have to find that particular area. And the only way to do that is to scroll back and forth across the entire screen while uh, what is, is the selected verb. So that part's not perfect. <laughs> um, but the thing that... Where that succeeds, I would say, is in determining what things are drawn on the screen just for looks versus what things you're actually supposed to interact with. So it does help you uh, in that fashion. The cursor is four small arrows that are all pointing inward. So you have this cursor. Uh, and then during disk access, the cursor changes to a little snail that shows you that the game is loading. Now, a few of the verbs have shortcuts on the keyboard, and one is the ability to switch between kids. So you can click the verb uh, switch or new kid, I believe it says, and then choose one of the other three kids, or you can use the Commodore 64's function keys. So F1, F3, and F5 correspond to the three characters, and you can press those and just uh, switch immediately to any of the three characters. There are cutscenes in this game, and F7 will skip one of the cutscenes. The cutscenes aren't very long and do give you information about the game. However, uh, once you've seen them, you may be tired of them, but I think it takes longer to load the cutscenes than it does to actually play the cutscenes. So I didn't really find that to be an issue. Uh, a lot of times, I, when playing a game, I will try. Uh, all the function keys to see if anything happens and F8 restarts the game. Uh, so I guess that's good if you put the game in a state where you're stuck, but not good if you're like me and randomly hitting keys to see what will happen. Uh, one of the things that they built into Maniac Mansion is a pause feature. You can press the space bar to pause the game or the game will automatically pause itself after two minutes of no input. So you will see the cursor change at that point and the game will stay there until you uh, move the joystick or press the space bar to unpause the game. Uh, finally, there is a message bar where text is presented to you and plus and minus will change the speed of the messages. You can save your progress in Maniac Mansion by saving your game onto a blank disc. All you need to do is format your own blank disc and you can save your progress onto that disc. Now, I mentioned the term cutscenes. This game features cutscenes. A lot of times you will be in the middle of action and I believe all the cutscenes are triggered by time not by specific events. So if you're waiting for something to happen, you can't do something to trigger a cutscene. You just have to wait for it to happen. And, and there are things where a cutscene will begin to trigger a game action that you have to perform. Um, now, according to the internet, the term cutscene was invented by Ron Gilbert, the creator of this game. He is the first person to use the term cutscene 
in regards to a video game. Now, this is not the first game to feature a cutscene. Uh, we reviewed Karatika, if you'll recall. Uh, I don't know if we reviewed it, but we definitely played it. But Karatika has cutscenes. There were other games before this that had cutscenes, but Ron Gilbert is credited with coming up with that term as uh, it relates to computer video games. Now let's get into the gameplay of this game. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to cover. Um, and I've tried to just pare it down to uh, the bare basics. But basically, this game is about choosing three characters and using those characters to cooperate to solve different puzzles. Now, you control all three characters, but not at the same time. I remember reading about mainframes and how they did time slicing, which is not where it would do multitasking, where you might do three things all at the same time. But time slicing is where you go from number one to number two to number three. So I always think of it literally like slicing. Like if you're trying to slice up an onion and a green pepper and something else, an apple. Uh, you, and you only have one knife. You can't, you physically can't slice all three of those things at once. But if you put them all side by side, you can slice on the onion for a second, move to the green pepper, slice that for a second, move to the apple and slice that, and then go back to the onion and go that. So I like to think of uh, this game as, as time slicing. So you can't control any two characters at the same time, but what you have to do is switch back and forth. So there are puzzles where you need a character to be in the right place at the right time. I streamed the first portion of this game not too long ago, and there is a puzzle where a doorbell rings in the mansion that triggers a cutscene where one of the characters goes to the front door to pick up a package. Now you have to have another one of the characters standing by the front door who can run and go get this package and then go hide before that character is able to exit the, the mansion and pick up the package. You have to be able to intercept this package. You need what's in the package um, to proceed in the game. So uh, if you are inside the mansion controlling one of the characters, you would not have enough time to do that. So that is kind of where this concept of, of time slicing uh, comes in. You have to arrange the other characters and put them in strategic positions uh, to be able to move forward in the game. Now, as I mentioned, each character has different skills and different solutions. So uh, obviously there's, for example, you'll run into some undeveloped film. Well, if you have the photographer, that kid can do something different with the film versus if you have a non-photographer. Now, you don't have to develop the film, but one character can and other characters couldn't. So again, uh, how you progress through the game depends on which characters you have chosen. So it does add a layer of replayability to the game. Once you've beaten the game with certain characters, you can play it again with different characters and you will have to find different ways to beat some of the puzzles. Um, but I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> this game is hard. This game is definitely hard. And some of the puzzles, the solutions are so out there. It's like they really had to stretch to make them beatable in different ways by the different characters. Um, 
if you are playing this for the first time, I recommend that you use the what is option a lot. It almost feels like cheating to click what is and just scan an entire room. And it takes a lot of time to do that, but you will find things uh, that are hidden in rooms. And, and one of the most frustrating things in this game, and you'll see this if you watch the stream that I did, is there are multiple places in this game where you will enter a dark room and there will be a lamp or a light switch, but because the room is dark, you can't see anything. And so literally the only way to find the switch is to use that what is and try to scan every part of the screen until you can find a lamp switch or light switch and then switch to the right verb of, you know, turn on and then go find that switch a second time now that you know where it is. Um, very frustrating. And that's the kind of stuff that doesn't add to the gameplay to me. It's just, they added that as a hurdle and it's, it's not fun. It's not original. I don't know why they did stuff like that. Now there are a lot of hurdles in this game. There are a lot of ways to die. There are a lot of ways to get captured by the people that live in the mansion. So if you are playing this on original hardware, you should save this game a lot. If you're playing it on an emulator or something else that supports save states, you'll probably want to do that as well. Uh, I found myself frequently flipping back to previous save points when I found out I had screwed something up or I'd forgot to do something or I wandered into the wrong room at the wrong time and got kidnapped. That's fun. <laughs> so save states, things like that uh, will help you progress through the game. I, I suppose it's fair to say that that all games are built on games that came before them. And one of the things that Ron Gilbert said was that he didn't like the interface on Sierra's games. He didn't like having to type in commands. And so he wanted to make those games better. And he did through the point and click interface. You don't have to use the keyboard to play this game, but one of the things that's very obvious when you play Maniac Mansion is that what he did take from those early Sierra games was uh, those types of, of deaths or those types of surprise things where you can wander in. Now, Maniac Mansion, for some reason, has this reputation of the characters are impossible to kill. And I think that comes from people who haven't played very far in the game, because if you get captured at the beginning by Dr. Fred, he just throws you in a dungeon, which eventually you could figure out a way to get out of the dungeon. So I think a lot of people think that you can't die or get killed in Maniac Mansion. That's not true. There are a lot of ways uh, to kill the characters <laughs> in Maniac Mansion. Now, some of these involve blowing up the house. There are multiple ways to blow up the house. And if you do that, then the game is over and you've killed all the characters. Uh, there is a circuit breaker down in the basement, for example, and the circuit breaker runs the, uh, I believe it's the cooling uh, system of the nuclear reactor. So if you turn off the circuit breaker, the nuclear reactor will overheat and blow up and it will blow up the entire house. Uh, and so that will end the game. Uh, there's also a uh, swimming pool. And if you go down, I believe it's in the basement, there is a, a water valve and you can drain the swimming pool. And at the bottom of the swimming pool, you will find a big red button. So if you have a character in the pool, 
and then you switch and drain the pool, you'll be at the bottom of the pool. You can see the button. If you press the red button, it will explode the house. <laughs> Game over. Uh, did I say you should save often? You should definitely save often. Uh, but there are also, and this is a term I was not familiar with. I picked up this term a couple of years ago from watching an online streamer. Uh, I would have said unwinnable situation possibly, but I heard this term of soft block. And so soft block is the situation where you get the game into an unwinnable state. Now this should not happen with good game development. This is something that game developers should and do avoid at all costs. However, Maniac Mansion is a complicated game. It's very complex because you have all these different characters with all these different abilities and each character, each puzzle in the game changes depending on which character that you've chosen. So I suspect back in the day when this game was originally being beta tested, the beta tester. Now I read that there were two beta testers. One beta tester was, uh, I believe Lucasfilm only had one official beta tester, uh, on staff. So there was that beta tester. And then Ron Gilbert's uncle also served as an unofficial beta tester. Ron would send him weekly updates. He would make copies of the game each week and mail it to his uncle. So these two people played the game, but I just, Imagine that they didn't play through the game with every combination of characters and every combination of puzzles. And so they missed a lot of ways that you can get this game uh, into unwinnable states, or you can basically soft block yourself from beating the game. Um, one of the things you could do is if you, if two of the kids die and you are down to one kid, you cannot win this game with only one of the kids remaining. Now it will let you play for hours and hours and hours, but there's no way to do it at the end of the game. You need two characters alive to be able to win. Uh, there are some, well, I talked a little bit about the film canister. It's a canister of undeveloped film. If you open it, when the lights are on, the film will be exposed uh, so if you have Michael, that makes the game unwinnable. Um, I also believe if, um, I don't know, there, there's certain multiple things you could do with the film to put the game in an unwinnable state. Uh, there's also a, a telescope room and you have to get these dimes and uh, you use the dime at first to see how the telescope works, but later uh, you have to use it to move it and look into the attic. And in the attic, you can see the combination of Edna's safe, which you need. But when you first encounter the telescope, if you used every one of the dimes, then there are no more dimes in the game. And so later, when you need to go up in the attic and move it uh, so you can see the safe, then it doesn't work. I mean, you're out of dimes. And so there's no way to see the combination, which you need in order uh, to beat the game. So there are lots of examples of this. Um, I, I know uh, one that I read, I, I've never done this one personally, but in the, uh, the car, there's a car and there are tools in the trunk uh, and you need uh, to use those tools to get the code to the secret lab. So uh, you can make the car take off and fly away. But if you send the car off and it flies away before you have the tools, then you 
don't have the tools that you eventually need to get into the secret lab. So again, there are lots and lots of ways to get this game into an unwinnable state. And unfortunately, in a lot of these, uh, a lot of games like, uh, you know, this, of this genre, you don't figure that out immediately. It's not until you've continued playing for an hour or two and realize something you did much earlier in the game has made it to where the game is no longer winnable. So that is super bad practice and I would say not representative of the general quality I would associate with Lucasfilm games. So it's unfortunate that there are so many examples of that in Maniac Mansion. Um, I mean, if I had to summarize this, I would say Maniac Mansion is uh, a difficult game. Uh, it's fun to walk around in, uh, you know, if you, even if you don't know what you're doing, you could explore, uh, you could go find these items and based on the items, you can start to figure out what you're supposed to do uh, as a kid without the manual or the box. I would have never beaten this game. I didn't beat this game. I had a good time walking around in this, in this house and doing random little things, but I, I don't feel like I was, uh, advancing, like I wasn't moving forward in the game. Um, one of the things I guess, as I went back and played this recently is I understand where the developers were coming from again, in regards to those old Sierra games in that, uh, having to type things in the, on the keyboard was a distraction. Uh, and so that, that constant keyboard import, uh, input was, you know, quote unquote bad, but, I don't know that the all joystick solution is necessarily the answer. Uh, it's not great. And as I was playing it, I immediately wished that I'd had a mouse. <laughs> uh, a mouse would have made these games so much easier. Now, the mouse was not uh, widely adopted by Commodore 64 users. Uh, and so there were very, 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 very few games that utilized a mouse, uh, literally, you know, a handful of games that utilize the mouse. So, I mean, I, I see how all keyboard import, uh, input, gosh, I keep saying import, uh, keyboard input was not desirable, but after a while you, it begins to feel like all joystick input is also not desirable. There are a lot of times where you will click on something and then scroll all the way with the joystick and point it. And it's the wrong thing. So I, I definitely found some frustration with that when revisiting this game, it, it will make you wish that uh, you were playing a modern version of this game uh, that supports a mouse. Now, one funny trivia fact that I ran across in this game was that there is a chainsaw that is available in this game, uh, but it needs gas. And I suppose this could be, related to one of those uh, B-movie tropes. But there is no gasoline in this game. The chainsaw is essentially unusable. Uh, but later in the game, Zach McCracken, you will find a can of gas. Uh, and when you read the description on the can of gas, it says, you know, I'm not sure what to do with this. Uh, and then it says, uh, let me look here exactly. It says, this is for use in another game. And so obviously, <laughs> so the chainsaw is stuck in one game and the can of gas is stuck in another game and never shall the two meet. So how did Maniac Mansion get rated at the time? Well, Lemon64 gave this game nine out of 10 stars. Zap 
gives this game 93 out of 100. Computer Video Game Magazine gave it 90. Happy Computer gave it 88 out of 100. 64 gave it 87 out of 100. ASM Magazine gave it 86 out of 100. Tilt Magazine gave it 85. This game was very highly reviewed. The only negative reviews I read from people talked about not enjoying the humor because there's definitely some, uh, there's some sexual innuendos in some of the jokes. There's some potty humor, uh, in, you know, in the game. Now all this was, was greatly toned down. If you read Ron Gilbert's account of developing the game, he wanted it to be more of a, uh, you know, late teen young adult style game. And he wanted to have among other things, a lot of cuss words built into the game. And that was something that he clashed with, uh, Lucasfilm games. They said, no, you have to remove that stuff. Now, of course, um, we'll talk a little bit about censorship in this game here in a minute, but, uh, I, I don't think that would have made the game any better. I don't think that would have served the overall theme of the game by making it any more adult. Uh, as mentioned, this game originally was released for the Commodore 64 and the Apple II. Both releases were in the fall of 1987. In 1988, it was released for DOS. Now, again, all the programmers had to do was port that scum engine over from those systems to DOS, and then the entire game, which was written in a script type code uh, would was easily moved over. I assume there had to be graphics had to be re redone, but that that's a, um, you know, a small hurdle as compared to porting the entire game. Uh, in 1989, the Amiga and Atari ST versions were released. And in 1990, uh, the Nintendo or NES version was released. Now, uh, there is a lot of stuff we could talk about about the Nintendo version, and this is Sprite Castle, so I won't go into too much detail. But uh, they had a lot of trouble on the Nintendo version getting all these jokes that they had written into this game past Nintendo's uh, censor board. There is some – they say nudity, but this is like, like the um, Venus de Milo statue, uh, like – I mean, I, I suppose that's nudity, but boy, I mean, that's, that's pretty tough that Nintendo wanted that removed from the game. Uh, there's some graffiti at one point that says for a good time, call Edna and Nintendo would not allow that in the game. It just says call Edna. Uh, and then one of the, the strangest things, and this is well-documented was that Nintendo did not like the word kill. They did not want the word kill associated with games. And in Maniac Mansion, there is a room that has an arcade. There are some arcade cabinets that are uh, have fictional names. And the name of one of the games that's written is Kill Thrill, which is funny because later on the PlayStation, <laughs> we have the game Thrill Kill, uh, which was being worked on. But Kill Thrill is the title, and Nintendo would not allow that in the game. So there were a lot of things that Nintendo did not allow in the game. Uh, one other difference I wanted to mention is that the Amiga and the Atari ST, beginning with those versions, had a book that came with it that included copy protection. So on the original, the Commodore 64 and Apple II versions, the copy protection was on disk 
copy protection, something that, you know, prevented you from physically making copies of the game. But with the Amiga and the Atari ST, they added uh, copy protection that was built into the manual. So it's the type of copy protection where it would the game would ask you a question, and then you had to look up the answer in the book and identify an object, I believe it was. Uh, if you misidentify that, then something would happen later uh, quickly uh, after that and and end the game. So that's a, another way where you could end all the uh, – kill all the characters was give the wrong answer for the copy protection uh under updated versions and sequels well number one is day of the tentacle so this game features a tentacle up in the attic who wants to be a rock star you have to uh, interact with the tentacle you have to provide him food and a drink and and there's uh, you you continue to interact with the tentacle throughout the game and so even though it's not closely tied uh, to this game, the Day of the Tentacle is the sequel. That game, for what it's worth, is a bit more streamlined. It has less complexity. Uh, I believe that Lucasfilm realized that a lot of the issues, uh, the the amount of time it took to program the game, as well as all those soft blocks and bugs, came from the multiple endings. And so that was all stripped out of Day of the Tentacle. It's it's much more straightforward. Um, also, in that game, Day of the Tentacle, you can see Ed's computer, and you can interact with that computer. And if you use the computer, it has Maniac Mansion built into it. And so you can play Maniac Mansion in Day of the Tentacle, which is a pretty fun little Easter egg. As far as Maniac Mansion goes, it is available on Steam. There's also an updated version called Maniac Mansion Deluxe, which was released for Windows and Linux. It is an updated 256-color VGA version. It is by a company called Lucas Fans, and it is freeware. It's completely free to download and play. Uh, they upgraded a lot of the things that were wrong <laughs> with the original Maniac Mansion. They upgraded it to 256 colors instead of 16 colors, I believe the original DOS release had. They added uh, digital sound effects and background music, and this was created using Adventure Game Studio Engine. So if you want to search for Maniac Mansion Deluxe, um, that's a pretty enjoyable version to play, to be honest with you. Now, there's not too many examples I can think of. of we, we've had video games that were turned into movies, but not too many video games that were turned into sitcoms. Now, after the release of this game, Maniac Mansion, the sitcom, uh, debuted on television. It was created by Eugene Levy. It aired uh, concurrently in Canada and in the United States for three seasons from September 14th, 1990 to April 4th, 1993. Now, fans of the game were not thrilled that the sitcom featured Dr. Fred from the show. It featured the landing of the meteor. Uh, obviously, it features a mansion, and that's about it. So any resemblance between the game and the actual TV show kind of stopped there. I watched an episode of this in preparing for this episode, and yowza. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that it 
made it uh, for three seasons. Maybe I just saw one particularly um, goofy episode. Uh, they had a lot of different characters. Um, Joe Flaherty is in the the show. Um, again, I mentioned that it was created by Eugene Levy. These are all uh, SCTV alum. Uh, there, there are a total of 62 episodes out there. So uh, there's some clips on YouTube if you want to check out Maniac Mansion, the sitcom. But uh, that's, that's uh, unique enough that I thought I would throw that in. If you would like to own an original copy of this, boy, get out your pocketbook. This is one of the best-known vintage classic adventure games. It is the first point-and-click adventure game, and to own it, you're going to have to pay for it. The only copy I saw on eBay that sold recently was a used but complete boxed copy for the Commodore 64, which sold for $115. Uh, the most recent copy I saw for the Amiga sold for $215. If you would like to own the cartridge for the Nintendo, you can get it for less than 20 bucks. There are a lot of games that I cover on this show where it's difficult to find things to talk about. You can talk about the gameplay. Uh, there are games I've covered where I can't find who the author was. Uh, games that it's really difficult to find information on. Uh, this game is the opposite. It's the, the challenge for this episode was narrowing down what to share, uh, because there is so much information out there about maniac mansion. A few of the sources that I found that I thought I would share. There's an article called the untold story of maniac mansion, And that was on wired.com. So if you want to search for that, you can read that covers a lot of information about that Nintendo version and some of the, the uh, hurdles they had to go through to get this ported to the NES. Uh, Hardcore gaming has a book called the guide to classic graphic adventures. And that has a lot of information about maniac mansion. There's another book uh, called rogue leaders, the story of Lucas arts, which talks about maniac mansion. But the biggest and free resource available on the web is a website called Maniac Mansion Fan. And the URL is maniacmansionfan.50webs. That's 50webs.com. If you search for Maniac Mansion Fan, or if you search for Maniac Mansion, walkthrough, <laughs> characters, anything like that, you will probably at some point end up at this URL. Uh, there is so much information about Maniac Mansion on this website. There are other articles that I found. I mean, I found at least at least a dozen where people had added information. Some of it was repeat information, but there's a lot out there about maniac mansion. So, uh, if you want to know more about this game, it's definitely, there's a lot of stuff out there to read. And now without further ado, let's get into my personal memories of maniac mansion. The first games I grew up playing were text adventures. Text adventures were a lot of fun, but if you weren't imagining exactly what the author was trying to convey, 
you could get stuck very easily. I think I've talked about this game before, but there's a game called Rambo. It was a text adventure put out by Mindscape. And in the first two or three, uh, the game started, and within two or three moves, you would get killed. Uh, enemy soldiers would show up like within two moves, and they would gun you down. And I must have played that game for a month and never got more than two moves in the game. And I think at some point in the description, it said, well, you've parachuted into this place. Well, what you're supposed to realize is that your parachute is visible and you're being tracked down because your parachute is there. So the first thing you have to do is remove your parachute, roll it up and stick it in a hollow log. If that's not your first move in the game, you will die. So you had to be on the same mind link. (laughs) <laughs> with authors almost when it came to text adventures, uh, especially if they weren't, you know, being really explicit in their descriptions. So the early, you know, even before maniac mansion, we had labyrinth and the thing about labyrinth was I didn't have the manual. I didn't have the instructions, but I had seen the movie. And so I knew what I was supposed to be doing. I knew I was supposed to get to David Bowie as the goblin King and find my way to the middle of the labyrinth and save my younger brother because I had seen the movie and I knew what I was supposed to be doing. Uh, But with maniac mansion, you don't get that advantage. That information comes partially from the game, but a lot of that information is in the manual and on the box itself. So as a kid who downloaded this game, I found it a lot of fun to wander around, to try to solve the puzzles and to try to figure out what was happening. But I didn't have all the pieces I needed to actually play this game. Uh, I just never felt like I was moving forward. I never felt like I was advancing in the game because I didn't have all the information that I needed. Uh, I remember thinking that the, some of the, you know, sexual innuendos were funny. So I think I was at the right age. Uh, this came out in 1987. So I would have been 14. So definitely those jokes didn't go over my head. And I thought it was funny that a game that you could buy off the shelf had those kind of comments in it. So I I definitely remember that. Uh, I remember how frustrated I was in getting killed or captured so easily. Once you enter the mansion, one of the first rooms that you will find is a kitchen. And if you enter that room, I mean, this is the most logical place to go in. When you walk in the front door, it's the first door. If you walk in that door and go to the right, you will get captured and thrown into a dungeon. And so it really takes the wind out of your sails because your first experience in the game is that by going into the wrong room, your character can be thrown into a dungeon uh, and and you're stuck. So it kind of, I, I never liked how it starts off with the wrong impression is, is what I always thought. And, and again, I think that was probably a carryover from those old Sierra um, text adventures. So I do remember playing this game. I remember enjoying this game, but I do remember not being able to get very far in this game, which was an unfortunate side effect of downloading it and not purchasing it. 
for graphics, I'll give Maniac Mansion four out of five meteors. Everything looks great. It's it's just a joy to look at and play. For music, I'll give it three out of five. And sound effects, I will give it four out of five meteors. For overall gameplay, I will give this game four out of five meteors. Maniac Mansion is a groundbreaking but difficult game that should be experienced by everyone at least once. Thanks again for tuning into Sprite Castle. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me at the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave a message on the podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. All patrons of my shows get behind-the-scenes blog posts linked to weekly Rando Rob videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Sprite Castle is available from iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com, and through the official Amigos podcast feed at anchor.fm forward slash Amigos podcast. To hear more podcasts from me, like You Don't Know Flack, Cactus Flax, Throwback Reviews, and Like a Doss, visit podcast.robohair.com for links and information on these shows. Many of the news articles and game details for Sprite Castle come from websites such as Commodore News, Indie Retro News, Vintage is the New Old, the Commodore Scene Database, Lemon64, and Moby Games. Thanks again for listening. Now get back to searching for meteors, and we'll see you here next time on Sprite Castle. Finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of Patreons like these. Thanks to my 8-bit supporters, Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Harry Clanton, Chris Folds, C. Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modalat, Eric Stranisi, Extent of the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Alley, Matthew Parong, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhart, Olaf Hope, Patrick Markey, Petzl, KZ9Zap, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gussie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters. Bill Spear, Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, Scott Von Dracic, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, and Mr. Wacky.